0: You're listening to Westminster on the Fly, a podcast from the Appalachian Roundtable with your host, Pastor Andy Steyer. Hello, welcome everyone. My name is Andy Steyer. I am the pastor of Canal St. Leens Presbyterian Church in Malden, West Virginia. If you are unfamiliar with where Malden is, it is a few miles east of the capital city of Charleston. I've been here for almost two years now. It'll be two years in March of 2021, serving as pastor of this little congregation, a little congregation which belongs to the Presbyterian Church in America. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be serving. And I want to say just a few words as we begin Concerning this podcast, uh, why we're doing it, what the goal is, some of you may know me personally. And if you are my quote-unquote friend on Facebook, you know that uh, I have a tendency to sort of look down upon what you might call celebrity pastordom. I'm not a big fan of pastors trying to build brands pastors sitting around on social media all day, making memes out of their own sermon quotes, trying to sound and look profound and all of that. I'm very much in the mindset that pastors should be primarily focused upon faithfully shepherding the congregation over whom the Lord has called them. And so the guys in the Appalachian Roundtable will tell you, I've been a little reluctant to take things on, like doing a podcast, and it's it's not because I don't support the work of Appalachian Roundtable. I think their intention in developing resources by Appalachians for Appalachians is very valuable. Uh, but they'll tell you, because of my own uh, personal beliefs and and sort of convictions, I've be, I've been reluctant to sort of get involved in any meaningful way. Uh, however, I I do see again I do see the value in having resources created for and by people living in the region of Appalachia. Uh, especially in this culture which, you know, I think it's it's probably safe to say Appalachians are are very wary of "Quote unquote outsiders," uh, and so as I talked to the guys in Appalachian Roundtable, they approached me with this idea of me doing a podcast uh, based upon the Westminster Standards. Um, as I talked with them more and thought about the purpose of that podcast, I just uh, came to the place where I thought, you know, if I can if I can support this work and by by helping to create some resources uh, for Appalachian people, then you know, okay, um, I'll I'll give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. Uh, if it's something that becomes too taxing on my time, then you know, I can always I can always bail. But uh, as of right now, uh, we're giving it a shot. Uh, it's our goal. It's our hope with this podcast to. First, make our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism and then move on to the larger catechism, and when we are done with that, uh, work our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. These three documents are known as the Westminster Standards. They are part of the official doctrinal statement and constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, as well as other Uh, what you might say, theologically conservative, confessionally reformed uh, Presbyterian churches uh, throughout the world, really. If you're unfamiliar with the Westminster Standards, let me just give a a super brief history, 10,000-foot view. Uh, In the 1600s, as the Reformation was expanding throughout England, Uh, there began to be several factions of groups rising up. The Puritans, um, who are maybe more Congregationalists. The Anglicans, of course. Uh, The Presbyterians in Scotland and in Ireland. And Parliament at that time became very concerned with the uh, various divisions among Protestants. Now, the Anglicans at that time had already developed a Reformed Confession of Faith known as the 39 Articles. However, Parliament thought that the 39 Articles perhaps could be revised so as to unite the various Protestant groups in England at the time. And so they called an assembly of Protestant Reformed pastors together, pastors and theologians who met at Westminster Abbey, this became known as the Westminster Assembly, and as the Westminster Assembly met, they produced uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as the shorter catechism, the longer catechism, and they also produced a directory for public worship and uh, what you might call in today's language a book of church order, a book of, of church polity government discipline and so on. However, because of various social political issues in England in the 1640s when this was being worked upon, the uh, Westminster Standards never really had the impact in England that Parliament was hoping it would have. The Scots, however, took the documents back to Scotland where they were really embraced by the Scottish Presbyterians, and this is then how the westminster standards became the doctrinal standards for the presbyterian church presbyterian church even to this day that, again that's just a 10,000 foot view very briefly on the history the formation of the westminster standards now as we talk about catechisms, what are catechisms? Catechisms are just a series of questions and answers designed to help teach and instruct people in the doctrines of our faith. Uh, and so the shorter catechism is a series of shorter questions and answers. Uh, historically, they've been used to instruct uh, children, and I would say even uh young, new believers, and then the larger catechisms. uh, When we get to the larger catechism, you'll see they're quite expanded. Um, Catechisms are something that were widely used uh, throughout the history of the church. Uh, Unfortunately, over the last 150 years or so, we've really moved away from using catechesis as a means of instructing the people of God. And I think it's safe to say that uh, we have now ended up with both a laity and, um, and church leaders who are maybe less educated. I hate to say it that way, but I, I don't think anybody can look at the history of, particularly evangelicalism in the West, I don't think anybody can look at the evangelical church today and say that Christians are more educated, more well-versed in doctrine and theology and the scriptures than they were 150, 200 years ago when catechesis was uh, regularly used both by churches and by families in in their home worship. So I think this is a valuable tool to teach the faith to God's people. It's a valuable tool for me as a pastor, as uh, I, I continue to uh, use catechisms in, in my own personal life to guide and direct me in my doctrinal thinking, and uh, so there's there's a lot of value here, and I think that something was seriously lost when the church in the West began to move away from making use of catechesis. Now remember, of course, catechisms are only valuable so far as they accurately summarize the teachings of Scripture. It's easy, I think, for us to speak this way about catechisms and, and forget that their value comes from the fact that they are able to teach biblical doctrine in a succinct way. Catechisms are of no value if they are teaching falsehoods, if they are getting away from the biblical teaching. So remember, I say all of this. I speak of the value of catechisms and catechesis, um, realizing that things like confessions of faith and catechisms are under the authority of the sacred word of God. Well, with that being said, Let's start looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I really don't know how many questions and answers I'm going to go through on each episode. It probably depends on the section of the catechism that we're looking at. Some weeks I may, like this episode, uh, may just take one question at a time. Other weeks we may look at a series of questions which fit together and examine uh, the doctrine that's being taught Uh, through several different questions and answers, but this week we're going to look just at the first question and answer. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, chances are you are somewhat familiar with the first question and answer. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Surely, I think the Westminster Divines, when they wrote this, had in mind 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, at the very least, had this passage in mind, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. You have to wonder, if you took a room full of, say, 100 Bible-believing Christians You brought them together in one room and you asked, what is your chief purpose? What is your primary purpose? Why were you created? I wonder how many of them would say, I've been created to glorify and enjoy God. Somewhere along the line, we missed out on this truth, that we've been created to glorify and enjoy God. All you have to do is look at the countless books and videos and self-help guides written for Christians to help them discover their purpose in life. Many Christians spend a lot of time worrying. They spend a lot of time in turmoil, wondering, am I really doing what God wants me to do with my life? Why was I created? Why has God put me here on this planet What is it that I should pursue in my life? What should I be doing, especially vocationally? What is the calling that God has placed on me? That line of thinking comes from, I think, it flows out of Christians forgetting the truth that we have ultimately been created for the glory of God And we are called to glorify God in whatever it is we are doing, whether we are a student or whether we are a pastor or we are a teacher or we are a nurse or a doctor or a garbage man or a janitor or flipping burgers at the burger joint. Wherever we are, whatever we are doing, We are to do it to the glory of God. That is why we have been created. That is why we are put on this earth. If we could remember that, and we could strive to live that out, I think it would save us a lot of anxiety concerning this question of, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? What you're supposed to be doing is glorifying God wherever you are at, whatever you are doing. Uh, It's really a, a freeing truth. To remember, to, to, to know that we can glorify God no matter where we are or what we are doing. It frees us up to trust God to lead and guide us in our life and lead and guide us through life's big decisions. And it frees us up to know that wherever we are, wherever God has us at the current moment, we can glorify him and serve him and enjoy him. Some of you may be familiar, probably many of you are familiar with the movie A River Runs Through It. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, I grew up in a fly fishing household, a Presbyterian fly fishing household like the McLeans in the movie. Uh, I, I see a lot of uh, parallels between my life and the kind of life that uh, Norman McLean wrote about in A River Runs Through It. It's a true story. Uh, It's based upon the uh, Norman Maclean's autobiographical work, A River Runs Through It. It's a great book. The movie really captures the spirit and the essence of the book. A lot of times, you know, it's so cliche. Oh, the movie's so much, or I'm sorry, the book is so much better. Yeah, but the movie really does a fantastic job in capturing the spirit and the essence of the book. However, where the book does shine, at least for me, is that the book sheds more insight on what Norman Maclean's childhood was like growing up as the son of a Scottish Presbyterian minister. And and so he writes in the book about his Presbyterian upbringing. And in one section, very close to the beginning of the book, it might even be in the first couple paragraphs, um, he says that in between on Sunday afternoons, we, meaning his brother Paul and himself, we had to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism for an hour and then recite before we could walk the hills with my father while he unwound between services. But he never asked us more than the first question in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? And we answered together so one of us could carry on if the other forgot, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This always seemed to satisfy him meaning his father, as indeed such a beautiful answer should. It really is a beautiful statement, a beautiful answer. It reminds us of what we were created to do. And it reminds us that there is true enjoyment in doing it. To glorify God in whatever we are doing in our lives truly brings enjoyment of God. Think about that. God, the infinitely holy God, the author and creator of life, created us to worship him, to glorify him in all things, but not just worship and glorify him, but also to enjoy him. By glorifying God, we find that we actually enjoy him. We find fellowship and communion with our Heavenly Father that is eternal in scope. This is our true contentment. Being created to glorify God doesn't just benefit God, Not in fact, it doesn't benefit him at all. Mankind cannot add to the glory of God, we cannot add to his enjoyment, we cannot enrich God at all. Instead, we find that we, the created, Finite beings are the ones who benefit infinitely by living our lives to the glory of God. We find eternal fellowship and communion and enjoyment. And this, if you think about it, this fellowship, this communion, it is exactly what we lost in the Garden of Eden when our first parents fell. And it is exactly what we find again through the life of and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So such a statement that we have been created to glorify and enjoy God. It should satisfy us just as much as it satisfied the Reverend McLean. You know, do we really see the beauty in this statement? Do we really see how wonderful this statement is we've been created? to glorify our primary purpose in this life is to glorify and enjoy God. Paul's statement as I referenced earlier 1st Corinthians 10 we realize Paul's statement is indeed challenging to us. You know, it's one thing to know that we've been created to glorify and enjoy God. It's one thing to know that we are to do all things to the glory of God. Uh, But it's another thing to do it, to live that way. And all of us realize how miserably we fail at this calling in our life. If we could, at the end of a day, take an inventory of every thought of every word, of every deed, if we could somehow list it all on a piece of paper, it would probably take several pieces of paper, and we could go through that list and just checkmark the things that we did to the glory of God, I'd be willing to guess that the things that are not checkmarked on that list would far exceed the things that are checkmarked. This is a real challenge for us, and a challenge to us, even we who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought to new life, are new creations in Christ, been set free from not only the guilt, but also the power of sin. Even we find this incredibly difficult to do. To do all things to the glory of God, uh, it's, it's a daunting task. It's a daunting task. Even we who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We find this incredibly difficult to do. And so as we think about our lives and how far short of the mark we fall in doing all things to the glory of God, we can take hope and say, thank God for the gospel. Thank God for a gospel that says, listen, listen, We have, at the cross, already, through the once, for all time, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, been perfected. We have, uh, through the gospel, in the gospel, have been clothed with the white robes of Christ's perfect righteousness. That brings us such hope and encouragement here. When we realize how much we fail to live to the glory of God, we can rejoice in remembering. And when God sees us, when God sees us who are trusting in Christ for our salvation, he does not see that big long list of all the things we failed to do to his glory. Rather, he sees his son's perfect righteousness, credits it to us as if it were our righteousness, and he receives the things that we have done to his glory. He receives them. As a sacrifice of praise. He receives them as a pleasing aroma. And He delights in us and He allows us to delight in Him. Thank God for the hope of the gospel. Thank God that our failing to live to His glory is washed away and covered in the blood of Christ, cast into a bottomless sea, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And God, does not treat us according to our iniquity. Brothers and sisters, we have in this first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism a framework for living. We have our purpose for, the, for this life summarized in this question and answer. We have the standard for living summarized in this question and answer. And so all of us have to strive to apply this reality to our lives. Do we want to find true contentment? Well, we find eternal contentment in worshiping and communing with God. We find eternal contentment in living life to the glory of God. By seeking to glorify God in all that we do, we find our purpose, our contentment, our our true joy. And so our prayer needs to be that we would take up this charge daily, that we would make it our prayer every day that God, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, would help us to truly glorify and honor him in all that we think and say and do.